Well, good morning, church. Um, there is a reason to be early. There's a reason to be on time, and I was reminded of that this morning uh, because what you just did was you preached the gospel to one another through song. And I hope you guys realize that. The care and the um, tenderness with which our worship team, whether it's Chris or Chuck and Carol or Emma or whomever is up here, that they take in choosing the songs based on the text that is going to be preached is um, very carefully done. And, and it was really, really striking as we sung these songs. If you could take a list of what we sang, listen to the message, and then apply those hymns and those songs to what we talked about, you would do well to do that. And I would encourage you to do that. We should make those songs available to you uh, this week so you can meditate and listen and sing those to yourself because you just preached the gospel to one another. So keep what you sung in mind as we... As we um, as we work our way through this text. Uh, my name is Craig McAlevey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I don't get up here very often. I clearly drew the short straw. I don't preach much, so they said, Craig, you don't preach much. Why don't you preach on adultery and lust? <laughs> That's not how it went. I actually signed up for this, which you may think I'm crazy for doing. Um, but over the last few years, I think God has equipped me uniquely to preach this message. Um, Several years ago, I became involved in a ministry called First Light Ministries that is involved in uh, sexual discipleship of men and women, and I lead one of those groups um, in, uh, through men in our church and men not in our church um, during the week um, through First Light Ministries. It does not make me an expert. I am not an expert on this subject, uh, but it has given me language, I think, to speak and it has given me a heart above all else. And so I hope that that heart comes through this morning as we work our way through Matthew 5. And I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 27 this morning. Um, before I read the passage, I do want to say one thing by way of a bit of a content warning. Um, this passage isn't terribly difficult to understand or to, um, to, to exegete. Um, uh, in fact, it's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of heavy lifting that's going to be necessary as we work our way through these four verses. Um, but uh, the truth of the matter is we are going to be talking about some pretty uh, straightforward matters. We talk about adultery. We talk about lust. We're going to talk about sex this morning. And so I just want to give a gentle warning first to parents of any young children um, uh, whether you're watching online, listening later, um, that uh, I'm not going to say anything salacious. I'm not saying anything out of line, but we do need to understand what we're talking about this morning. Uh, we're talking about adultery. We're talking about lust. We're talking about matters of sex. And as a parent, you just may not be there yet with your parent, with your kids to talk and to engage them in this subject matter. So I just want you to know that that's coming and that if at any time you need to make a move of some sort, uh, that's okay. Um, please feel free to do that. I also want to give uh, um, a reminder or a gentle warning to, to, to the rest of us. As it comes to matters of our heart, as it relates to things like lust and sex in general, as it relates to your personal story, you may have experienced some pain and some hurt in your life in the past, some of which may make you very sensitive this morning. And I want to be mindful of that. 
For some of you, may, you may have processed that in a, in a very well, very good way. And for some of you, you may, not, you may not have. And church, I just want you to know that this morning, my intent is to shepherd you through this. My intent is to love you through this and, and all of your pastors, Jesse and Sam, myself, Jim, we are here to shepherd you through this. But these are issues that we need to talk about because scripture speaks to these in fact, we want Emmanuel to be a safe place. We want Emmanuel Fellowship to be a place where we can openly talk about matters like this because God cares about it. But we realize that some of you may not be in a position right now where your heart is ready to hear it. And I just want to let you guys know that what's coming. In our text this morning, uh, to provide a little bit of context where we are here on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has gathered and called his disciples to follow him. Uh, they go up on a mountain. A lot of people follow them up on the mountain, but specifically his disciples come closer. They draw near to him to begin to hear Jesus's teaching on the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. And now he is teaching them on the Sermon on the Mount what kingdom living looks like. Jesus is ushering in a new paradigm. It's a completely different way of thinking. We've said it before, the kingdom of God is upside down living. You may have heard the term biblical worldview. That's a common view of, of uh, description of what we may, uh, may call this. I have a love-hate relationship between that phrase because it sounds very academic. And the truth is kingdom living engages our hearts just as much as it engages our minds, and that's what Jesus is getting at. So let's listen this morning and engage this text perhaps with fresh eyes, with fresh ears, and with open hearts. I'm going to read our text this morning again, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus in his teaching says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go in to hell. And this is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, open our hearts as Jesse just prayed. Open our hearts. Make them tender and moldable. Shape our hearts, Lord, how you want them, not how we want them to be. Father, take the brokenness that is in our, our own stories. And we all have stories of brokenness of different kinds and begin perhaps for the first time this morning to heal us. But for all of us, remind us of your good grace, of your tender mercies. We are so grateful that you are that God, the God. We love you and we thank you and we praise you for that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. As I said, there's not a lot of heavy lifting that we need to do, but where are, there are some things we need to talk about in this passage regarding some terms and some definitions and some cultural perspectives um, before we begin applying this to our hearts. And so Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you. 
In fact, he makes that statement six times in the course of chapter five. Last week was the first where he talked about anger. He says, I, you have heard it said, but I tell you. These are often referred to as the six antitheses. Again, last week we started with anger. This week we go to adultery. Um, Jesus is giving us a contrast in ideas that on the surface may look like, like he's being contradictory to scripture itself. But we all know that that's not possible. Jesus is himself, according to John 1.14, the very word made flesh. He cannot contradict himself. He cannot contradict the word of God because he is the word of God made flesh. And so Jesus speaks boldly and he speaks with authority and he says, you have heard it said, which reminds us once again that the, 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 the listeners originally uh, heard the Old Testament much more than they read the Old Testament. That's how they encountered God, was by hearing it. Most people couldn't read. So that's how they're engaging this hearing. Remember, they weren't taking notes as they're listening to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that spans several chapters, right? They're listening. They're taking this in through their ears. And of course, the source that Jesus is bringing up, like last week, is the Old Testament law, the, specifically the Ten Commandments. And something important to note is that the, the people of Israel would have, would have been exposed not just to the Ten Commandments, but to, the, to a rabbi's teaching on the Ten Commandments. So their spin or their interpretation on what that law was. And so Matthew, remember, what, what Matthew is trying to show us in his gospel is how Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the entire biblical story about God and Israel. There is an arc here from creation to consummation, and Jesus is in the center of that. And so Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. Remember the genealogy in chapter one. Jesus wants, or Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is a new authoritative teacher in the line of Moses. In fact, he is the greater Moses. They would have revered the great teacher Moses. Matthew's telling us that Jesus is the greater Moses. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter seven, as it concludes, Matthew records that the crowds were astonished at Jesus's teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority, not like their scribes or their rabbis. And Matthew wants us to show most of all that Jesus is God himself. Jesus is God himself and not just God himself, but God with us, Emmanuel. So when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you, he's not just some amazing teacher bringing a new twist on the law. He is, as we've said, the fulfillment of the law itself, the embodiment of the law and the word made flesh who has entered into our reality, church. This should make our hearts sing that God himself enters into your reality, into your pain. I said that, that I want to shepherd you through this passage, that our pastors want to shepherd you through this passage. That's because Jesus wants to shepherd you and is shepherding the original hearers and all of us through this passage. He says, do not commit adultery. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, this is the seventh commandment, simply means 
do not have sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. For context, in the ancient world, generally speaking, a married man, it would have been acceptable for him to have adventures of this kind as long as it didn't involve a married woman. Because if you involved a married woman, you would be violating the rights of her husband. But a woman, however, because there was a double standard, would be, would be expected to remain chaste before marriage. Also, the Old Testament command not to commit adultery is often treated in Jewish sources not so much as a function of purity as a function of theft. Committing adultery was stealing another man's wife, which dealt with the eighth commandment. We know that this is not just directed at men, even though it says specifically man. But we know that the the commandment in Exodus 20, 14 is a blanket statement for all of us when it says, do not commit adultery, period. Here, Jesus is saying something different. He's pointing in a very different direction. He's talking about purity that refuses to lust. He says, I tell you, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this word look refers to a continuous process of looking. It's not just a volunt- an involuntary glance, but it's an intentional, a repeated gazing that has a very specific action in mind. Think of David and Bathsheba. David fixated on what he saw. He dwelled on, he gazed on, he, he let that build up in his heart and turned into lust, and then he acted on that. And we know the consequence of that sin was tragic, and yet God redeemed it. The word lust or lustfully is simply a desire or a long for, but it's linked to our heart's affections. Now, this word lust, it can be used both in a positive and in a negative sense. I think when we hear that word, we, we think it's inherently bad. But for instance, in Matthew 13, later on, where, he, where Jesus talks about how the prophets and the righteous people longed to see what the disciples see, that word longed is the same word for lust. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 3, where it says, if anyone desires to the office of an overseer or an elder, he desires a noble task. Same Greek word, desire, lust. So lusting is not inherently a sinful act. It's not inherently a lascivious act. But in our text this morning, Jesus links this continuous, intentional, overwhelming desire to the physical activity of actually committing adultery. You see, this is sin that lives in our imaginations first. We're forming a mental picture, a mental image of something that does not currently exist in reality, and we're desiring that it happens. We're desiring that it would come to fruition, and Jesus says, it is as if you have already committed the act of adultery. I'm not a Greek scholar, but Greek scholars say there is strong evidence that the phrase, the Greek form of this phrase, committing adultery, actually means that you're, you're looking at her or him with the intent of getting him or her to lust back to you. So it's much, much more and much, much deeper than simply looking. It's engaging with an intent of enticing someone else to lust along with you. It's very insidious. You see, Jesus, to Jesus, our minds and our hearts matter as much 
as our outward actions. We, we know this, but sin has so thoroughly wrecked humanity. It's so thoroughly infiltrated our hearts like a cancer that's invaded our hearts and our minds that needs to be cut out. And so Jesus goes on and he says, quite literally, if the right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It seems a little drastic, doesn't it? Seems, seems a little over the top, right? Whatever body part is causing you to sin, just cut, cut it off. Now, there's an implication there, if you're tracking with me, that could be quite drastic as far as cutting something off. He's not talking, quite frankly, he's not talking about castration, but, but that's not a joke because there have been those in church history that have taken this literal and have taken to the act of castration, but that is not what this is talking about. The right eye and the right hand would have been seen as especially valuable in those days, especially the eye to a warrior. Throughout scripture, the eye is a member of the body most commonly associated with leading us astray. Numbers talks about it, Proverbs talks about it, Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes. There are many passages that talk about how what comes in through the eye can create ultimately sin and lead us astray in our hearts. One commentator said, imagination is, God's given, is a God-given gift, but if it is fed dirt by the eye, the imagination will be dirty. All sin, not least of sexual sin, begins in the imagination. Therefore, what feeds that imagination, he says, is of maximum importance in pursuit, remember, of kingdom righteousness, of living in the kingdom of God. Pastor John MacArthur says, where the heart is not right, drastic action is needed to correct it before it results in outward sin. So when Jesus talks about cutting things off, he's using hyperbole to make a very important point, to get our attention. I mean, practically speaking, if we gouge out our right eye, we still have our left eye. If we cut off our right arm, we still have our left arm. So Jesus is engaging in hyperbole. And that is pretty basic. There's more we could say, but that's pretty much what this passage is te teaching. Where do we go with this? There's two things I wanna talk about up front that have to do with our sinful hearts. And this is where, because it's sin, things are going to get a little heavy for some of you. And then we'll talk about how the beauty of the gospel applies to our own hearts. So two things about our sinful heart condition. The first thing is this, we are all sexually broken people. We are all sexually broken people. Each of us were created by God in his image, created as male and female, created as sexual beings. Sex is a gift. It's a gift from God intended to be celebrated in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That is God's original intent in creation. That is a sermon all to its own. In fact, Sam had a, a marriage one night last night that talked about some of this stuff. But it's a gift. Sex is a gift to be used in the context 
of a marriage between a man and a woman. Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 points to this. But because of the fall, when sin was introduced into creation through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, what happened was relationship was broken between God and between us. Relationship was also broken with other people. And relationship was also broken between ourselves, within ourselves, within our own being. Relationship was broken. We're gonna come back to that idea in a little bit, so hang on to that. But one of the significant effects of sin in the hearts of humans is in the realm of our sexuality. We're created by God as sexual beings. We live in a fallen world. This is why we can say that we are all sexually broken. Now, how that practically bears itself out in our lives, the fact that we are sexually broken, this is kind of where we get into an area of a content warning. Practically speaking, very few of us, the first thing I wanna say, very few of us were raised with a healthy and a biblical understanding on sex and human sexuality. That's one of the reasons we have our marriage one nights is to talk about not just sex, but marriage in general, but sex in particular and how that relates. For many of us, as we were raised, sex was at best something to be hidden, something to be ignored, something to be not discussed at best. And at worst, it was thought of as shameful and dirty and certainly not to be talked about. Either way, whether it was hidden, ignored, or seen as, as evil or shameful or dirty, either way, the message we would hear often was, just wait till you're married, right? Just wait till you're married, which is not a wrong, it's not a wrong perspective. It's not a wrong thing to say. But, but the byproduct of both of those mindsets has tragic consequences because when that happens, when we don't have a biblical understanding of the gift that God has given us in sex in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, our logical recourse is to, in our natural curiosities as human beings, um, as we grow and as we, we mature in the course of our early years of development, is we look to be discipled by someone, and often it's the world that ends up discipling us with tragic consequences. We can all share stories of how that has worked out in our lives. The second way being born as sexual beings into a fallen world practically works itself out. For some of us, our personal stories regarding this involve a lot of hurt and a lot of pain because of other people's sin. Whether we're raised with an unhealthy understanding of sex and human sexuality or whether our personal story involves one of hurt and pain because of the sin of other peoples, regardless of either one of those two being true, and for some, it's both often. But the truth is, because of that, all of us have wounds. And again, it's because we are sexually broken people. For some of us, those wounds are just surface level wounds. It's like a cut on the hand. It's something that is a surface level wound. We were aware of it. We still function well as believers. We still pursue Christ. We've come to understand and process and perhaps be discipled on some level as a believer what the meaning is 
It's not something that is debilitating or a besetting sin in our lives, but we do have those wounds. They are there. From time to time, they come to the surface. However, others, because of your stories that involve pain and hurt in this area, we've come to believe at our very core and a very foundational level that we are not just humans that live in a fallen world, that are sexually broken. Rather, we believe, listen very carefully, we believe that we don't just have wounds, but that we are wounded people to our very core. We are wounded people. There is a difference between saying, I have a wound and I'm a wounded person. One goes much, much deeper. The implication of this of being a wounded person has deep implications on our very identity and how we see ourselves. The narrative that we tell ourselves that I am wounded instead of I have wound or the wounded self as it is called is that we become wrapped in shame. Again, because of the fall. It's not that we should feel shame, but the fall affects us with shame. Shame says I'm wrong. Shame says, I'm wrong. It's our identity. So we have this unhealthy perspective. We believe the lie that we are wounded and that we are wrong. And the narrative is there's something wrong with me and it's my fault. Whatever has occurred to me in my life that has caused me pain and hurt, I am to blame. That's the shame. That's I am wounded. This has become so entrenched then in our identity so much a part of who we are that we live immersed in a cloud of shame and deep woundedness. Many times we become totally unaware that we're even living this way and just how deeply it has affected and infected our very being. How does this relate back to our passage today? Often our only respite when we see ourselves as wounded people Again, I'm not necessarily talking about just a surface level wound where we've kind of been discipled and we've grown in this area and we're living and we're functioning in a healthy way. But, but when we say that we have been wounded, often our only respite, our only recourse lives in our minds initially. It lives in our imagination. And when something happens in our lives, because we do live in a, in a sinful, broken world, Every day, stuff happens in our lives that derail us. Sometimes it's just a little bit. Sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes it's significant. Someone willfully hurts us. Sometimes it's just something is neglected in our lives and it it wounds us. It hurts us, rather. But it triggers us, doesn't it? It's a destabilizing event that triggers us. Could be big, could, could be small, but it sets us off and it reminds us because it hurts us. It reminds us that we are wounded and the shame narrative kicks in and we tell ourselves, I'm wounded, I'm to blame, this is my fault. And the response then is to seek help naturally. We're seeking to address that wound, whatever it is that, that set us off track, rather than understanding that God is in that, he's teaching us something is happening, happening, maybe confession needs to happen, maybe conflict management needs to occur, but God is doing something. Our natural response is to seek help. However, because we are seeing ourselves as shamefully to blame wounded people, we look for unhealthy ways to care for ourselves. 
rather than healthy ways. We start to self-soothe, which can look like many different things. That's where the world of addiction and habitual sin kicks in. It could be any number of things. It could be eating. It could be binge-watching TV. But in this case, often our imaginations then become fantasy that lead us into what Jesus is talking about, lusting. This is where Jesus is saying that what lies in the imagination and the mind is not inconsequential. Because in our context of sexual brokenness, it becomes not just a matter of the mind, but a matter of the very heart. And this matters to God. And so Jesus says, it's just like you're acting out what you are imagining, in this case, adultery and lust. Some take it further and they actually engage in what's called unwanted sexual behavior. Could be a number of things. We won't get graphic there, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Now, the reason this is such a big deal is because unless drastic action is taken, like MacArthur said, the behavior that begins in the mind is acted upon in some fashion and it spirals us down into an ongoing cycle of shame, an ongoing cloud of darkness. Remember the narrative, I am wounded, I am to blame, becomes our mantra, becomes our identity, and the cycle repeats itself over and over in our lives. And some quite literally live in a constant fog of sin wrapped in shame. It's heavy stuff. It's hurtful stuff. For some, we're not even aware that it's happening. It happens in such a level, such a deep level of a subconscious, we're not aware of what has triggered these actions. Now, for some of us, this may be rare. It may be an outlier to you. But Jesus' point is it's not as rare as you think it is because of our hearts, because our hearts and our minds matter to God. We also need to understand that this is very common in our culture common in our church, or in our churches, the church overall. We all know people that live this out daily, whether it's lust that lives in the mind only or whether it's acted upon in some way because of the shame, it's kept hidden and people continue to spiral, which is why we need to talk about this because Jesus says it's a matter of our heart. God sees this. And God loves us, and it's important for us to understand how we can love one another when it comes to this. This all lives in the realm of what 1 Corinthians says is sexual immorality. And that's the second thing that I want to say regarding our sinful heart condition before we get to the glorious hope of the gospel, and that's this sexual immorality impedes our worship of God. Why does Jesus care about this? Why is he talking about these matters? Because sexual immorality impedes our worship of God. Just like anger impedes our worship of God, so does this. Because what happens in the mind and the heart does not always stay in the mind and the heart. But even if it does, that's not how God sees it. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Whether it does or whether it doesn't, the result is the same. It impedes our worship. Jesus, talking about the law, remember this whole thing started with Jesus saying that I fulfill the law. 
unless, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never gonna enter into the kingdom of God. So he's getting to the heart. Jesus sums up the law and the prophets by saying what? Love God and love others. It's impossible to love God, to worship God when we are sexually immoral. It impedes that worship. And if that's true, it's even more true, perhaps, that we can't love each other when we're engaged in sexual immorality. Let me give you a few examples of Scripture and how it instructs us to this end that this sexual immorality, immorality impedes our worship. Ephesians 5 is a familiar passage on marriage where it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There's a whole sermon in there. One flesh. It's not just talking about a figurative picture of marriage as one flesh. It's talking about the physical union of a man and a woman. Sam probably talked about this in the marriage one night last night. And then Jesus says, Paul says, this mystery, he calls that a mystery, it's profound because I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to be respectful of her husband, a mystery. This mystery is profound. This one flesh physical union of a, of a husband and a wife is a mystery because it points to Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church. God is giving us a picture of Jesus's loving relationship to us, his church, manual fellowship, through the example of this one flesh union of a husband and a wife, and this should drive us to worship. There is a whole book in the Bible that talks about the love of God and how he pursues us and how a man pursues a woman and it's the Song of Solomon. It's a beautiful book. But it's a picture of just how God loves us. Married or unmarried in the room today, when was the last time you considered that truth? That the one flesh union is not just God's gift of pleasure to us in marriage, but it reveals the very heart of God. When was the last time you even considered that and it caused you to worship God? Back to 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says to run from sexual immorality. Jesus has cut stuff off. Paul backs off. He's like, just run from it. Every sin in a person, every sin a person commits, he commits outside of his body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know, listen, that the body, your body, is a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are not your own believer. You were bought at a price. Therefore, Paul says, Glorify God in your body. Worship him with your body. What we do with our bodies, not just in this area, but in all areas, matters to God. Lastly, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to what? Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Your body's not your own. Your mind is not your own. Present it holy and pleasing to God. This is what your spiritual worship, other translations say reasonable worship. 
because of what Paul has taught in the first 11 chapters of Romans about salvation, therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God as spiritual worship. Paul links the result of our salvation through Christ to living a sacrificial life in our bodies and said, that's reasonable worship. Then he says, don't be conformed to the age, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Why? So you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. It connects us to our Father. Don't be conformed to the age. Don't let the culture disciple you sexually or any other way, because if you do, it will only lead to the misuse of your body and your mind, and you will be impeded from worshiping the Lord. How do we guard against this misuse of our bodies? It all begins where? It begins in our minds and in our hearts because they are so intrinsically linked in our imaginations. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Through the renewing of our minds, through what? The word of God. Through the word of God. Sam's point when he preached that Jesus fulfills the law, when he talked about the law, he talked about the beauty of the law because the word of God is the law. Psalm 119 has about six or seven ways that he describes the law. It's the word of God. It's the entire scripture that God has given us. This is how we renew our minds. So we are sexually broken and sexual immorality impedes our worship of God. What is then the good news? Well, it is the gospel. Sin separates us Remember at the beginning, we talked about Adam and Eve. One of the first things I said this morning was because of the fall, when sin was introduced into creation through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, relationship was broken three ways, between us and God, between one another and with ourselves. The scene in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobey God, the result was that their eyes were open to their nakedness. And so what did they do? They hid they ran away. First, they hid themselves from each other by covering themselves up. Then they ran and they hid from God. God is searching and he's like, where are you? Which is funny because he knows where they are because he's God. But why did they hide? Genesis 2.25 says that Adam and Eve were naked. This is pre-fall. They were naked in what? They felt no shame. Shame had not entered into the picture before sin. But sin brings shame into the picture And we've already talked about what shame does. It spirals us down into a fog of more sexual or more sinful, unwanted behavior. And as the result is deeper and more significant, the result is more deeper and significant disconnection with God, with others, and the disconnection with ourselves. And sin becomes more habitual and more normalized in our lives. And this could, for some, at worst become an addiction and at best just an unwanted sexual behavior or sin that only lives in our minds that no one else knows about except for God. The gospel remedy. The opposite, we say in first light, this may seem a little strange to you, but the opposite opposite of addiction, you may think is sobriety. Don't be addicted. Don't do drugs. Don't 
have sex outside of marriage, whatever it is. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction, listen, is connection. The opposite of addiction is connection. It's not just stopping the behavior. God has something much more for us, and it's connection. That's what Jesus is saying. Technical sobriety is living by the letter of the law. That's what he's saying. It's a matter that goes much deeper. We may seem holy on the outside, but it's destroying us in the, on the inside. It's destroying our minds and our hearts. And the remedy is connection with God, with others, and with ourselves. I'm gonna end this way. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter four. And this is where we will land this this morning. In chapter four, beginning in verse 12, the writer says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom, to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is, listen, unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Church, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. That's a beautiful passage. Let me close this way. Addressing the matters of our adulterous hearts in the way Jesus is teaching us today in our text begins with this first thing, and that is you becoming available to God you becoming available to God first and foremost. It begins in a literal sense, like this says, with the word of God that is living and active, letting it pierce our hearts, letting it soften and tenderize our hearts, both to comfort and convict. Church, we cannot hide from God. We cannot hide from God. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of God, and there's no shame before a holy God because he loves you in Christ, he sees you as you are. He sees your sin, regardless of how sordid and ugly and nasty it is. He sees you as Jesus and he loves you when he looks at you. Being known and accepted by God is the gospel. That is the gospel. One of the most beautiful experiences I've had in this is a lead, a first light group, a group of about six to eight men is there's, there's the first half of what we do. It lasts about four months. It's called known and accepted. And the goal of these men, the only goal they have in these first four months is to go through some pretty deep material. And at the end of it, after those four months, they share their entire sexual history 100% with these other men. And it's amazing. Because over the course of four months, we see these men learn to love one another and they tell these stories about their brokenness and it's ugly. And these men love them and accept them and it is a picture of the gospel. And that's what we are all called to. 
Next, and this is an amazing truth that we simply don't get. We can point to Jesus's righteous anger in scripture, right? Sam talked about that. We can point to Jesus's anger as righteous in scripture, and we can talk about God's righteous anger and judgment, but I can't find anywhere in scripture where we can point to Jesus lusting righteously. It's not there. But we have something even better than that. We have a high priest, We have a high priest in Jesus Christ who sympathizes in our weakness because he too has been tempted in this way, yet he was without sin. So we are called to boldly go to Christ. He understands us. Connection with God through Jesus, through the incarnation, Jesus becoming a human is the most profound truth in all of Christianity, in all of world history. It proves the ultimate love of Christ for us. Church, Jesus knows your pain. Jesus knows your struggles. He knows your temptations because he too was tempted. And he understands you, as the commercial says. He gets you. He's entered into your pain. He is entering into your pain. All you need to do is let him in. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Do you believe that? This is where healing begins, connecting with God through Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. His word to engage our mind, use his word to engage our minds in order to know him and connect with him, to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, because that vertical relationship with God affects all of our other relationships horizontally. And so we connect with others that flows out of there. We connect with others and ourselves because of this relationship that is newly restored with God. But it's a symbiotic relationship because we pursue God with each other as well, which means not only should we be available to God, our faith also involves other people. We pursue God and we must be available to others and ourselves. This is accomplished by things like living in community, by engaging in our Sunday gatherings in a consistent and in a meaningful way. It means being in discipling relationships, one-on-one and small groups. It's joining and participating faithfully in gospel communities where we are known and we know others. And it gets ugly times. It may not go quite as deep as a separate group of men together, because that's kind of a special situation, but, but when we deal honestly and openly with our sin, it gets, it gets messy. It gets difficult, but we love each other and accept each other. Being available to others and ourselves looks like engaging in other discipleship opportunities like we had last night, the marriage one night, or Bible studies that we've had on Sunday mornings and will continue to have Or maybe it is something to the degree that we need to look up First Light Ministries. And maybe it's something we don't feel comfortable talking to one of our pastors about, and you need to know that's okay. That's okay. There are places to go that will keep your story confidential while you pursue health. And First Light Ministries is one that we would commend to you. And on an even deeper level, this this connecting, this concerns connecting with ourselves. We all need to begin to understand our own emotional health. One of the ways that 
Chris, you can come on up as we close this out. One of the ways that we want to help you connect with yourself is, is through what's called emotionally healthy discipleship. It's something that Pastor Jim has started, a 10-week class that he just began leading recently. It's kind of a trial run at first. We have not opened it yet to the entire church, so you may not have heard about it yet. It's beginning with some leadership development, so people that are in development as leaders, but we will be offering and opening this up to the rest of our church at some point. Because here's the things about emotions. They're gifts from God. Emotions are gifts from God. They're not bad, nor are they good. They're gifts from our creator who uses our emotions to communicate with us. And if this is true, and I believe it is, don't you wanna be a better listener of God rather than being angry and flying off the handle or letting lust live in your heart or some of the other things that Jesus is gonna talk about in the coming weeks. These are ways he is speaking to us through our emotions. Church, all of these things as we engage in the life of our church, all of these are ways that we fight the sin in our lives. All of these are the means of grace that God is providing to you to gouge out your right eye and to cut off your right hand, to pursue holiness and to engage in the battle. Because what's at stake is our ability to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's at stake is our ability to show up on a Sunday morning and worship, truly worship the Lord, and then to love others as we were created. Let's pray. Father, these are hard teachings. These are matters of our hearts that we don't want to talk about. There are places that we don't want to go. next few moments, our response is simply to search your heart and ask God through his word to pierce your heart, whatever it is or however you're dealing with some of these matters. Ask God to show you. Ask God to show you how to pursue him in this. Maybe it is a conversation with one of the pastors. Maybe it is pursuing ministry like First Light or some other ministry. But whatever it is, humble yourselves before a mighty God and ask him to speak to you. And after a little bit of time, I'll come back up and I'll lead us in communion.